Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Seminole Tribe historian Willie Johns. If we silence ourselves and don't participate, we will not have to get the opportunity to tell our side of the story the way we want to be told. We'll climb to the summit of Hobe Mountain in Jonathan Dickinson State Park. Hobe Mountain is, I think, 85 feet tall, and in South Florida, that's a mighty, majestic mountain. The cigar industry in Florida, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Yo, yo, at the Atatiki Museum on the Big Cypress Reservation near Clewiston, displays and exhibits celebrate the history and culture of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Seminole Tribe historian Willie Johns is Outreach Community Specialist for the Atatiki Museum and spoke recently at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa as part of the Discover Florida Lecture Series. Willie Johns says that he has always had a thirst for knowledge about the history of his people, but no one talked much about it while he was growing up. My immediate families were too busy trying to survive that the historical reference to them went out the window and they and then when it came my turn to ask the questions nobody seemed to know like I had to do a thesis for the Thothiki Museum on Osceola and we thought it would be cool to go and do all oral interviews with the elders and when we went when we asked about Osceola, what did you hear? And a lot of them said little or nothing. You know, they, you know, he's mentioned, but he's not mentioned in any power or any excitement movement. It's just, yeah, we heard about him, but you know, <laughs> so. But yet on in the other culture, I'm reading, uh, yeah, this is a powerful guy, you know, and he swung a big stick, and when he swung it, everybody paid attention. But back in my little lonely village, nobody was talking about it. They were just too busy trying to feed their families and survive. During his senior year in high school, Willie Johns realized that he didn't know what it meant to be a Seminole. This epiphany led him to start asking questions and undertake independent research. I didn't know hardly anything about myself. I didn't know who I was. I mean, they call me a Seminole kid, you know, but what is a Seminole kid? You know, where do you, who is he? What is, where did he come from? Who's his people? What'd they do, you know? 
I didn't know all that. And so I started studying, started talking to people who I thought knew, and I started reading all the good uh, ethno history that Sturdivant and several of the uh, older writers wrote about Florida, Spencer, you know, all these guys. And I started come to realize, you know, wow, we missed a whole, you know, a whole culture or a whole part of our life here that uh, went void. And so I started digging in and started learning and started asking questions and started pitch, you know, pitching it to people my age and, you know, and they're looking at me like, wow, you know. And uh, then later on, you know, as I learned more, all of a sudden my I got caused a division within my own people. Some started calling me a textbook historian because a lot of my history wasn't coming from the elders and so when when I get that when I had that labeled on me and I always throw it back throw that back at those people that use that word I always say you know if you know something tell me if not you know back off Willie Johns says that while oral traditions passed down by tribal elders is extremely important, as time goes on, the Seminoles depend more on traditional research and books to preserve their history. I'm a senior now. (laughs) Back when I started, I wasn't. And all those seniors that were living at my time really didn't have a whole lot to give me other than the fact, you know, they gave me a good culture. You know, they gave me a good culture background, but no no historical relevance of how we came to Florida, who we was fighting, what we was fighting for, because I guess after the Third Seminole War, we kind of went in seclusion, and we stayed away, and we just tried to maintain and survive in the Everglades, and then through the reservation period, just doing whatever we could to make it. 2013 marks the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state by Juan Ponce de Leon. Willie Johns is the Seminole Tribe representative for the state's Viva Florida 500 project. Some Seminoles don't believe that this is an event to be celebrated, but Willie Johns thinks that the anniversary is an educational opportunity for people to learn more about Florida's indigenous population. There's, there's a big split and uh, it, we have a, a group out there that protests all the time that are they're against the whole thing because of the atrocities that were placed on Native people at that time. And, and I, keep, I keep telling them, you know, if we if we silence ourselves and don't participate, we will not ha- we will not have the get the opportunity to tell our side of the story, 
the way we want to be told. Instead, they will tell it for us. And we need to take that opportunity to hang in there with them, see what they're telling, and if it fits us good, not, we correct them. Because we want everybody to know that Florida came with a price, a big price for the Spaniards, for the Native people, or especially the Native people. And uh, we don't want them to think that the conquistadors, the Spanish people, were great friends and we welcomed them. They came here and took this place, and we want them, we want the people that's involved in this to know these things. While most mainstream Seminoles see the upcoming anniversaries of Spanish colonialism in 2013 and 2015 as educational opportunities, some do feel differently. We have a vigilante group out there that's not part of the Seminole people, and and, uh, the non-Indian world has to know that. They know who these people are that... that ones that speaks destruction and stuff that, you know, there was one group out there wanting to bulldoze the, the fort, you know, that, and they misrepresented themselves by calling them Seminoles, but that's not the Seminole. That we're not, we're not destructive people. We want to do it in an, an educational environment, you know, because once you bulldoze down that fort, you get the permission and bulldoze it. It's gone. In 10 years, the memory will be gone. Everything will be gone. You know, it'll be just a another site, another picnic area. And uh, nobody will remember, say, you know, that there once stood a fort there. And that uh, whether it was good or bad, it the memories will be gone. When the Spanish arrived in Florida 500 years ago, the advanced cultures already present here included the Apalachee, the Tamuqua, the Ais, the Calusa, the Tequesta, and many others. After contact with the Spanish, these tribes were eventually wiped out by disease and conquest. As a Seminole tribe historian, Willie Johns feels it is his responsibility to preserve the memory of these other tribes. In our tribe, we have a TIPO department. Tribal Historical Preservation Office, and the federal government recognizes us as the caretakers of the ancient ones here in Florida. And so we, we take it serious. You know, Congress passed a law, a law called NAPRAS, and it's uh, the repatriation of bones and such, and um, I've been involved with my tribe doing that, and uh, we've had several pieces brought back, and we're in the process of getting uh, like 65 skeletons back that were taken during the 1940s from uh, colleges in the East, and uh, so they're gradually coughing them up, you know, and we're gradually putting them back in the ground. But, yeah, I mean, 
it's it it is our responsibility you know nobody there's no voice for them today so our tribe takes that charge and that lead the Seminole tribe was a branch of the Creek Indians who came south into Florida in the 1700s and were renamed Seminole. Willie Johns believes that some Seminoles are descendants of the original inhabitants of Florida. Some of them are. Some of them were adopted. After all the wars and everybody was kind of wandering around Florida trying to reorganize themselves and... Uh, a lot of small bands were running around, and they were placed into uh, Seminole Creek bands and Miccosukee bands were placed in their in their care. So a lot of the Bird Clan r received uh, a lot of the original people. Five centuries ago, the conquistadors brought disease and destruction to natives in Florida. Two centuries ago, Andrew Jackson worked aggressively to remove the Seminoles from the state, first as territorial governor of Florida and later as president of the United States. As Willie Johns points out, Jackson's Indian Removal Act was not successful. Even the Supreme Court ruled against it. But Andy Jackson at the time had all the powers, and he told John Marshall, stop me. And nobody could stop him because those days they didn't have federal marshal, marshals and set to order a stop. So he, the uh, Indian Removal Act was was uh, born, and uh, and that meant that anybody east of the Mississippi and went all the way up to Maine to the tip of Key West, anybody east of the Mississippi River was. Uh, in violation of the Indian removal. You know, they were trespassers. So lot left with no violence. Many left, you know, was had to be rounded up. Our people chose to fight. The three Seminole Indian Wars of the 1800s were a failed effort. The U.S. government could not defeat the Seminole tribe, and efforts to remove them from the Florida Everglades were abandoned. Until just a few decades ago, many Seminoles were living in poverty. That changed when the Seminoles opened casinos and eventually acquired the entire Hard Rock franchise with venues around the world. It has uh, killed us, but yet it has given us new life. You know, because we grew too, it, the, the wealth grew too fast. For the people and uh, didn't know how to, they didn't know how to spend it, and uh, so, but yet, it, it brought a new day for them, for you know, like modern medicine. We have, we have our own medical clinics because of gaming, and. Uh, we have our own police department and EMS, fire department, all the things that you need to have a successful city, we think, you know. And uh, so these newfound wealth has brought this for us.
Atatiki means a place to learn or reflect. Willie Johns is outreach community specialist for the Atatiki Museum on the Big Cypress Reservation near Clewiston, where Seminole history and culture is preserved. He spoke recently at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa as part of the Discover Florida Lecture Series. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to shop for great Florida books, utilize our educational resources, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to get our daily Today in Florida History posts and all kinds of great updates. To receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, just go to myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button. In 2013, Florida commemorates its 500th anniversary, dating from the arrival of Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon on our Atlantic coast. Now, a moment in history with Florida's Commissioner of Agriculture, Adam Putnam. Though citrus is now part of Florida's identity, the fruit is not native to Florida. In 1565, Spanish explorers and colonists planted orange trees at St. Augustine. Citrus thrived in Florida. By the mid-1700s, wild citrus groves dominated the landscape surrounding the St. Johns River and stretching westward to Gainesville and Ocala areas. When Florida became a U.S. territory in 1822, a commercial citrus industry was on the rise. At the center of the industry, St. Augustine was producing about 2 million oranges a year. Fresh fruit was shipped north by boat. Freezes eventually destroyed the orange industries in North Florida and South Georgia, solidifying Florida's stronghold on citrus. The arrival of the railroad in Florida in the 1870s and 80s made shipping faster and easier. By 1894, Florida was producing over 5 million 90-pound boxes of oranges a year. Today, Florida produces nearly 150 million boxes of oranges per year. This Moment in History was produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Florida is not known for its mountains, but Hobe Mountain, the 86-foot sand dune in Jonathan Dickinson State Park, has been a natural landmark for centuries. Janie Gould takes us there. Jonathan Dickinson State Park, a vast expanse of preserved land in Hobe Sound, was populated by Calusa Indians 5,000 years ago. During World War II, several thousand military personnel encamped there at the hastily constructed Camp Murphy to get top-secret training and radar. Now it's mostly hikers, fishermen, campers, and school children on field trips who visit Jonathan Dickinson. Author and retired journalist James Snyder wrote a book about the park, which has a highly visible natural landmark. Hope Mountain is, I think, 85 feet tall, and in South Florida that's a mighty, majestic mountain. It's the only thing that was on the Spanish maps, and it was called the Bleach Yard. 
it was at that time white sugar sand it didn't have a lot of vegetation on it and it stood out and when the ships from Spain or foraging parties would go up the Indian River and pass that they would call it the bleach yard if you had a dockyard in Spain and you hung your sails out to dry that's when they call it a bleach yard it's a natural hill it was not an Indian bin or anything like that it's called a parabolic dune and it was part of the ancient shoreline and now it's about what a mile from the beach, something like that? Yeah, it's probably a half mile from the intercoastal waterway. And built on top of it is a ranger station right now, where at the moment there is a group of uh, grade schoolers up there doing a lecture. How tall is Hope Mountain? Uh, 86 feet! 86 feet high. Um, What's the view like up there? It's cool and windy and fun. You can see the water and it looks really pretty with all the boats going by. Yeah, there's boats. Here's the preserve covers nearly 12,000 acres. For years and years, it was just used by squatters. The only thing that distinguished it from being absolute wilderness was the fact that Flagler Builders Railroad in 1893 threw here on its way to Miami. And the people who had been squatting here and raising pineapples and tomatoes and things like that could finally put their produce on a train and hope to sell it as far as Boston. The Flagler Railroad encouraged people to cut down wood in the park. The trains would stop at designated places and they would board all the wood and use it for fuel. But also, Flagler was building the Royal Poinciana Hotel in Palm Beach, which was a 1,500-room uh, largest wooden hotel in the world, and they needed lots of, guess what, wood. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. In 1900, Florida's leading industry wasn't citrus, cattle, or even tourism. It was cigars made in Key West and Tampa. Bill Dudley has more. At the cigar bar inside Tampa's Columbia restaurant, the emphasis is on conversation. The air itself may be a little smoky, but the atmosphere is congenial. One of the things that's still great is there are places that people can still get together and you can talk. American culture is so busy with itself that it has lost so much. And one of those things is the art of conversation. Glenn Westfall is professor of history and cultural anthropology at Hillsborough Community College near Tampa. If you were to ask me what's the single thing I like best about the cigar industry, I actually wouldn't say the great cigars. I would say the fact that it brought me into contact with people that I otherwise would never have had the opportunity to meet and uh, rekindled the old art of conversation. Westfall is the author of a trilogy of books celebrating the cigar industry in Florida. It's a story that goes back over two centuries to a time when tobacco exported from the Spanish colony of Cuba was considered among the world's finest. 
In the early 1800s, Spain began allowing the Cubans to roll their own cigars, creating new industry and a new artisan class hungry for independence. Melinda Chavez is executive director of the Ybor City Museum Society. Within the cigar factories, you had the institution of the lector or the reader who read to the workers and who uh, therefore educated them and who gave them a strong sense of what was going on in their own community, of what was going on in the outside world, and of their own power. In 1868, a war of independence broke out in Cuba, which lasted nearly 10 years. That civil war led to a massive exodus of middle-class Cubans fleeing their country to Key West, to New York, to New Orleans, but primarily Key West, 90 miles away. And it was there that suddenly, on a small island 90 miles from Havana, thousands of Cuban refugees, skilled artisans in the making of cigars, created a virtual uh, economic renaissance for Key West. But many of these new immigrants were also active revolutionaries dedicated to freedom for their home island. Westfall blames the Spanish government for the disastrous Key West fire of 1886. All evidence indicates that it was arson. They tried to burn Key West to the ground to destroy the basis of the uh, monies that were being collected for the revolution. But instead of ending the industry, it spread it across the rest of Florida. That's when Ebor and Ignacio Aya, who was in New York, started Ebor City. A number of factories moved to the Jacksonville area. You had small factories in Palatka and Pensacola and St. Augustine. By 1900, while the Cuban population represented about 20% of the population, it represented over 40% of the state's industrial wealth. You had over 200 million cigars rolled annually. It's a phenomenal figure. The Spanish sold raw tobacco to the Florida cigar makers, Westfall says, simply because they needed the money. In 1895, inspired by charismatic leader Jose Marti, war again erupted in Cuba. Three years later, the U.S. entered what we now call the Spanish-American War. Steamship and railroad magnate Henry B. Plant began bringing Cuban tobacco only to Tampa and Key West, crippling other Florida cigar towns, including the short-lived Marti City in Ocala. Still, by the time the popularity of Cuban cigars began to decline in the 1920s, the cigar companies had set a new standard for progressive industrial communities. Now, when you look at the Industrial Revolution in the North, tenement houses, overcrowded conditions where the bosses controlled everything, Florida really uh, has never been given credit for the fact that it had the truly first successful model industrial communities. Not only did the workers own their homes, but they also owned the grocery stores, the hardware stores. You had private enterprise. And all of this in Cuban exile communities. The cigar industry provided the economic basis for a cultural legacy still celebrated in Florida communities like Ybor City. We had, uh, of course, the Spanish people, uh, the factory owners for the most part, but we also had the black and white Cubans, we had Sicilians, we had Romanian Jews, we had Germans, and all of these people, you know, created this culture out of that mix and it really is quite fascinating. For Glenn Westfall, the romance of a fine Cuban cigar lives on in the large body of fantastic and colorful label art that's been preserved in private and public collections 
like the Ybor City State Museum. Images of factories, of people, of Cuban uh, gala events, all which were cigar labels, country scenes, home scenes, cockfights, dances. It's, it's one of the most marvelous visual images of the, the height of Cuban culture, the romance of the culture. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and continue the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.